Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. One week, people. One week away, all right? Get your tickets, show up at the door. I don't care what you do. You have one week, one week from tonight until our live event. It's going to be so much fun. I'm not even going to give you any bullshit to start the show with. I'm just going to tell you to come to this thing. That's my bullshit. You don't know when we're going to do our next live show, so this is your chance. It could never, ever happen again. This could fail spectacularly and just will go down in a ball of flames. But... For, for now, we're going to be optimistic and hopeful about it. It's going to be great. So show up and make sure that first thing doesn't happen. Um, anyways, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hi. Do you have your tickets? I have my tickets. Do I should get a ticket, You Nick? should get it. Okay, I'll go, I'll go online. <laughs> are they going to let me in if I don't have a ticket? No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are. Um yeah, so uh, obviously, like I said, we're one week away from our live event. It's happening next Wednesday, November 20th, 6.30 p.m. here in Naperville on North Central's campus. Um, myself, Bill, Phil will be here in person. Uh, Tom and Suzanne will be joining us as well. We're going to do questions, uh, do uh, normal topics that we talk about. Um just yeah. kind of riff and have fun. And- My, Miley Swallow Hall right on campus uh, near the YMCA, if that helps anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Make it sound too glamorous. That's right. Um, yeah. Like I said, you guys can get tickets. We have an Eventbrite thing uh, up. You just have to search for Barstool Politics. Uh, the tickets are free. That just kind of helps us get a, a good headcount of people who want to be there. It's the easiest way to share the event, too, if you want to send it to other people. But otherwise... Just show up at the door. We're not checking anything. Just find a seat, sit down, have a good time. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, it's, it's going to be fun. It's, it's going to be, be a lot great, of fun. Nick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, make sure you do that. Uh, also, in the next couple of days or so, we're going to have some t shirts and mugs and various other things with our uh, stupid logo and whatnot yeah. on it that you can pick up. Um, once we have that up and running, um, We'll send something out on Twitter and Facebook uh, to let you know what the link is. It'll probably be through Teespring. Um, so just keep an eye out for that. Uh, if you want to keep an eye out for that, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, and the uh, the podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate it. Get your tickets or non-tickets and show up at the door at six <laughs> at, at six to six thirty p.m. Next with your Wednesday. with your new mug with with, with some new logo new, stuff. We got some new, new different logo. Stuff. Very, it's gonna it's gonna be very exciting, people. This mm-hmm. is the Barstool Politics Week you've been you've been waiting for. <laughs> I know I've been waiting for it. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, Did anything happened this week. No, oh, okay, it's been pretty slow actually. <laughs> pretty much up until today, I didn't really give a shit. Nikki Haley is uh, obviously a traitor, um, and no one cares about the Berlin Wall. Doc, oh, I, mean, I can't wait anyways. to get to the Berlin Wall, Nick. That's <laughs> that's our last topic. It's going to be great. Um, but to start with, obviously. The public impeachment uh, hearing started today, um, so we'll kind of give a rundown of not a tremendous amount happened today, nothing earth shattering, but this is obviously a, a big step forward in, in the inquiry. So, Bill, if you could give us a rundown of that. Yeah. So Wednesday today marked a historic day at the House of Representatives as it officially began the public phase of its impeachment hearings. Both Democrats and Republicans have prepared their cases and will offer radically different interpretations of President Trump's actions regarding Ukraine. Democrats are hoping the hearing will provide an opportunity to present what they believe is an overwhelming is overwhelming evidence of Trump's abuse of power and his attempt to get foreign power uh, foreign power to investigate his political opponents. 
The Republicans have developed a counter argument and will attempt to make the case that the evidence does not support the allegation that Trump pressured Ukraine to conduct investigations or that Trump attempted to cover up or mis- uh, misconduct or obstruct justice. The opening hearing began Wednesday with testimony from William Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine, and George Kent, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. Phil, we are at the beginning of a process that will go down in the history books, and that that's important. So so where, sh- where should we start today? Doesn't everything technically go down in the history books? Uh, some get more <laughs> more space. Anyways, go yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, this feels like... Uh, sorry, I'm having some microphone issues. Uh, this feels like... Uh, <laughs> it, it does. This feels really significant. I mean, I, 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 the, the idea of these hearings being you know, televised all day, as I wander around the office... I, I realize that I, you know, work in a political science department, but um, everyone on my floor are not political scientists, and I notice people paying attention today. You know, the the administrative assistant in our in our hall was was watching the hearings. It feels, it does feel like a significant moment. I know it feels like a long time getting to this point. The part that I think will be interesting, I, I didn't get to see all that much of the hearings today because I had to teach, but I did see little bits here and there. Um, and the the part that I think will be interesting is that I, I don't know the answer to, but I'll be interested to see how much of an impact this has on sort of moving the needle. Because we've talked about on here that uh, we're we're at a point where there's not a whole lot of new stuff coming out, right? The the story has largely been established, which is that there was aid to Ukraine that was held up in some way, and it feels like what we're litigating at this point is does it matter? But I also realize that the three of us and the majority of our li- and the, the people who listen to a polit- politics podcast are not the normal American, right? I think mm-hmm. for most Americans, um, this you know this is not new information that's coming out, but it is new information to most people. And when it's on national TV, we live in a in an era of sound bites and sound clips and stuff like that. And you know, you and I were texting Bill. Uh, Bill Taylor is you know he was and 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 other uh, George George Kent right was the other yeah, guy's yeah. name. They're both well-spoken. They're professional. Um, they're say, there's a difference between leaking a transcript of a testimony and watching him sit there and give that. And I, I don't have a sense yet of where we are as a society, whether this will actually matter or people have already moved on. I can't help but feel like it's going to make a difference, that people are going to react to the visual and the audio differently. I think that's a really great point because Bill Taylor today was was impressive. I mean, this guy is a career diplomat. He's worked for a Republican and Demo- Democratic administration, has a long career. And he just, he you know, he clearly took a lot of notes and was presenting that information. I, I'm curious to see how compelling that will be for the American public. Will they sit down and say, wow, he, he really made the case that there was a quid pro quo and that troubled him? Or are we so set in our partisan ways that that's how we will interpret his evidence. Yes, it's uh, probably, but it it is different when it comes from from the actual individuals because we get to assess them. We get to see, you know, is this individual credible? Is he not credible? Let me hear his story. Uh, and, and I'm wondering too, will it will it move the needle? Will it not move the needle? How will the media cover it? I mean, it's really hard if you are. If you're a news organization, you had five and a half hours today of 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 potential sound bites. Which ones do you choose? I mean, do you go to the key opening ones where where Bill Taylor was talking about kind of the, the most important moments, or do you go to some of the antics that occurred later in the hearings? All of that will play such a big role in how how the public responds. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we've gone through enough of these hearings over the past couple of years, not necessarily related to this, but yeah. any hearing um, you know presided over by both Democrats and Republicans <clears throat> that have purely been political theater, or if they're not political theater. And they do have significant substance to them. They become political theater once they make it to the news outlets. Yeah. Um, like you said, Phil, people like us are, are generally, we consider ourselves not the average American when it comes to following this type of stuff. You're exceptional, Nick. I know I am. That's what my mom tells me all the time. How could anybody not like me? Um, <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, my, my job is not in this world. So I didn't have time to watch this. Yeah. And realistically, most people are not going to have time to watch this. And they're either entrenched or their, their, their main source of information is going to be the media outlets yeah. this evening. And regardless of what sound bites that they pick out of this, 
it's going to only, in my opinion, cement their already very cemented beliefs into, you know, whatever their political alignment is currently. Um, I I don't think this does anything. Realistically, we we talk about this all the time. This is a very big deal and it is it's it's history in the making. But at the same time, I the more I see this happen and the more uh, entrenched that that it feels like we've become, the more that this seems like a foregone conclusion. Evidence is going to be presented. Some of it's going to be viable. Some of it's not. We're going to go to our separate camps. And in the end, the Senate isn't going to vote to kick him out unless there's some sort of massive revelation. We can talk about impeachment, but unless he's removed from office, this isn't mean. Well, that, anything. that's what will be interesting to see because you're right. So I was flipping back and forth going online to Fox News versus MSNBC today, and they had very different interpretations of, of the presentation. But I wonder about those, like you said, Nick, the guy who who's working all day comes home and flips on NBC or ABC or something like that. What are the more mainstream news outlets representing about this? And does that move those individuals to say, boy, this guy seems credible. Uh, and, and this makes me feel like maybe Trump was up to something. And that's, that's the really good question here. I wonder, I mean, I think about back to the Mueller testimony when, when Mueller showed up, that, that was a, a nothing burger, right? I mean, only because he was unwilling to kind of take a stand, but what we've seen out of like Taylor today, he was willing to say, this is right. This is wrong. I mean, and I think we're going to get more and more testimony from career bureaucrats who are going to say, this is how I understood that that has the potential to move the needle more than maybe Mueller did with his approach. I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think yeah. they're, they're going to need compared to, they're going to need something they're going to need a bombshell. And I, I, I'm not sure that they have it. And today was certainly not evidence. I think there was the evidence that they gave today or their interpretation of the evidence that they gave today was, you know, the, the narrative that the Republicans paint, which isn't necessarily untrue in a lot of situations, is that this is secondhand, secondhand information. I overheard a conversation that I talked to somebody else who said something that was similar to what the president said, but I don't know if they were connected necessarily um, and, you know, one statement uh, contradicts another statement by another um, uh, person who was testifying um, like there's there's so much back and forth and so much confusion about what is true and what is not. And when you're talking about career bureaucrats or people who have been in government for you know decades at this point, who who have who have stellar careers and, and, and should be trustworthy at this point in our political discourse or, or, or the, um, the state of our political discourse, I think having those people do that and not having something that's so fact-based that you can't contradict it, isn't going to move the needle much in, in any capacity. It is possible they wear them down a little bit, right? Cause I mean, I, I think you're right that none of the individuals who are going to testify are going to be overly dramatic, but they, if they continue to present the same message, and especially if you get somebody like John Bolton, if they get Bolton to testify and oh, he reinforces what everybody else has said, at some point you do wonder whether the public says like, Hey, sure. You know, there's, so, there's something to this. Mm-hmm. I, I want to make, I'll, I, I want to play, I want to make an argument for why this does matter. And I, I'm not sure that I'm convinced of this, but I think here's, here's the argument for why it does matter. Trump's support is at, you know, he's got what, 35, 40% approval. So um, there's a third of America, right? There's 35 to 40% of America who's on board that think he's doing a good job. Um, the, the majority of them, they're not the focus of this, right? There's a big chunk of Americans. There's what, 50% of Americans who think that he should be impeached. The, the key demographic is that remaining 15%, the people who who don't think that Trump's doing a good job, but are not convinced yet that impeachment is the route here. And I think if we think of Fox News viewers or diehard Republicans, this isn't going to do a thing. It's not going to convince them. If we think about you know, people who are 100% on board with Elizabeth Warren, this doesn't matter. They're already convinced. What matters are those, those sort of 15% in the middle who aren't sure about Trump. They're also not convinced that, that impeachment is, call, is called for in this particular situation. And if I think about them and I think about what I saw, the parts that I saw today, which was the, the sort of professional calm, you know, the, the, the Bill Taylor and George Kent versus the sort of 
tactics or antics, depending on how you you view it, of of some of the Republicans on the committee. I don't know. I think that that some of that, you know, seeing that if if you are still undecided at this point, then then you're you're I don't know, maybe you're either totally tuned out or you're kind of actually interested in hearing, you know, both sides of it. And and I think that they could be convinced. And and again, if if 10 of those 15 percent switch to pro impeachment. So, you know, if if half of them go pro impeachment, then you're at 60% support for impeachment. And I think that's enough to actually mm-hmm. make a difference. So, I you know, again, that's that's lots of ifs, but I I I can see a, a lane in which this does in fact matter. And and I think the fact that it's not just a day of testimony, that this is going to be the story for, you know, a period of time that people are going to get hammered with. I I I don't know. I I'm I, I don't have any predictions that it will matter, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does. There was a fascinating interaction between Taylor today and Jim Jordan. And, and Jim Jordan, he yells constantly. <laughs> like even when he's you know just trying to make a point, he's always yelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, Taylor had said something about, I'm just presenting to you what I heard. And then Jordan responded, but that didn't happen, right? And so there was this wonderful moment where it was an argument over who has a better caption of, of reality. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder where the public will be. Will the public look at this and say the the tactics or antics of Jim Jordan are clearly BS, right? Uh, and that this career bureaucrat has credibility? Or is it to, to Nick's point where everybody says, I don't know, we can't figure it out. Uh, and I, I'm not sure right now. I, I would hope. I think these witnesses are infinitely credible and nonpartisan. And I think it's it's going to present an overwhelming case. But but I don't know if the American public is there. I know the partisan elements of this are certainly not there. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I to get to 60 percent approval for impeachment, I think would take a lot. And it's certainly going to take, again, more than what we've seen to date, which is next to nothing. But at the same time, I think that outside of public opinion, I think that the um, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll make my objection when you're done talking. Okay, <laughs> you're talking. all right. I wish you could fill a bell. <laughs> no, I, I, I back to, to my original point. There's part of me that thinks that, despite you know, if there is more enough concrete evidence to show that there uh, there's enough of a case to move forward with impeachment, um, I think that the political parties themselves are entrenched enough to forego or not forego, but to negate up to a very significant point, um, the uh, public sentiment. I think if it does go to the Senate and we do talk about removing him from office, unless it's uh, 60% is is not enough, in, in my opinion, for the Senate to completely turn on the president. I don't, I don't totally think agree it's, with that. Yeah, it's a I, long shot. I, I think the 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 die is cast at this point. Like yeah, this is, this is the process that we have right now. And unless there is something earth shattering over the next couple of months, he's not going to get removed from office. And if that's not the case, that's your end game. And, and I'm referring to the Democrats. If that doesn't happen, if that physically cannot happen in the space that we occupy right now, um, I'm, I'm not sure what, what we're talking about. What, what is the purpose of this? Well, point? he would still be if, if Trump, let's say Trump goes through this, he gets impeached, which I think is, 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 in, is likely, right? That's going to happen in the House. He'll go to the Senate. I think you're right. It's still more likely that he would not be removed from office, even if he survives that vote with, let's say, a handful of Republicans voting to remove him. But everybody else basically stays where they're supposed to be in terms of party. He's still damaged in a way that's really, really difficult for him to win in 2020, or at least that would be my interpretation of it. He's been he'll be battered by this process. And and so there might be electoral consequences, if not, you know, impeachment consequences. Phil, you were going to jump in. Uh, yeah, objection? I mean, uh, <laughs> well, so I mean, I for, first of all, your your point about because you the reason I sort of reacted was you said that they haven't shown anything yet, and and I I think my thought on that is I, so I I tend to think they've shown uh, a whole bunch right through all of this testimony they brought a lot of evidence out, but your point is also I think an important and a valid one, which is how people think of this will also determine how significant they view it. So. If I mean, there's a chance, there's a risk for Democrats that all of this televised hearing, because so much has come out already, 
I mean, I think about Nixon, right? When stuff was coming out during the Nixon case, it was people were seeing it live on TV during the hearings. And because we know a lot of this, it could feel sort of anticlimactic when Bill Taylor goes out and says this stuff. If this is the first you had heard of it, it would have felt like, holy shit, this is a bombshell. But to hear him say it when we've, you know, read the transcripts and it's been, it, it, it might feel less you know, mm-hmm. climactic. And so that's, that's a tension that the Democrats have to, I think, wrestle with, right? How you, how you make sure that these really significant things don't start to feel normal. And that is what Trump is really damn good at is making mm-hmm. these really, because yeah. he does so much of this, it feels, you know, not that significant. The other point that I was going to make is that I am uh, not as ready as the two of you to deem the a Senate conviction dead in the water. I think if it if it happened right now, it wouldn't. You know, if if there were a Senate trial right now, it wouldn't happen. But I think if public, I I think there is a tipping point at which public support for impeachment does in fact push Republicans away. And if we're at fifty five percent, you know, fifty to fifty five percent for support for impeachment and removal at this point. I don't think it has to get to 80%. I think when it's in the 60 to 65% range, I think that there's a tipping point somewhere in there. And it seems inconceivable right now. But I, I think if it happens, it would happen quickly. If it starts to look like, oh, people are turning on Trump, Trump is doomed, I, I could see it happening. So I, I'm not as skeptical um, as the two of you. And then the last point that I want to throw out is that you were saying, Nick, and, and again, this is you were saying that if your end game is removing him from office, I think that's where we we totally tend to think of politics in this win, you know, as sort of a football game, right? You win or you lose. Um, and if, if we think of it that way, then yes, winning this is, you know, the end game is to win. I think that's how people tend to think of it. But I would also like to encourage people to think of this in a broader sense, which is that you know, holding a president accountable, even if you're, I would like to think that Congress will move forward if they think a president should be held accountable, even if they think they might lose, right? This is back to that, take some principled stands and let people vote yes or no on it, as opposed to always trying to have, you know, your finger on the pulse of America, which is what it feels like we've gotten to in politics. I would just love it if people did things because they believed in them instead of because of, I I realize that makes me naive, but still. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that that could happen, right? There could be this movement where there's at least enough of the public that says this doesn't feel right. Uh, you know, either we're not going to vote for him again, or you know, we want him removed. <laughs> there is a segment they're called Democrats. <laughs> right. so, no, I think there's, I think there's more than that, right? I think there's you're right, but I think there's there's a, a potential broader audience who who are not necessarily they may be Republicans, but not Trump supporters who might be swayed by this. The other thing I wonder about is so the Republican defense has become clear. You know, the, Nick, you mentioned that uh, one of the talking points today was that this is second or third hand. Um, you know, the other argument is that the aid for Ukraine, that Ukraine didn't know that it was held up and eventually they got the aid. Um, online today, there were a number of people, including, I don't know if it was Trump, but many people were saying, like, this is so boring. This is yeah. boring. <laughs> you know, will will that defense you know, hold true over time or will it seem hollow? And I, I'm not sure, you know, the idea that it's second or third hand is, you know, in, in some ways is a fair point. But the reason that's the case is because Trump won't let any of the inner circle testify. You know, you're not going to get Mick Mulvaney. You're not going to get Mike Pompeo. You're not going to get those individuals who are right around Trump. Um, you know, the idea that the aid was held up um, is sort of an interesting one for me because you know, if it, if it was a crime, it doesn't matter if you were successful in the crime. You know, if I'm going to rob a bank and I try to rob a bank, but I don't rob the bank, you know, they can still but put me. I didn't rob the bank. <laughs> but that's kind of what Trump is saying is like, you know, or not Trump, but I would say like the defense today was, well, you know, the aid went through. Yeah. Yes, the aid went through because this started to leak out and there was pressure. But it was to me. It's also clear that Trump was trying to, you know, to to get Ukraine to investigate Biden and look into the DNC server, those sort of things. So it feels like the crime occurred. It just was not successful. So here's my question, yeah. and it's a question I've had since the start of this whole debacle, and I yeah. really haven't found a good answer to it yet. So in this situation, if you do have a president or you know a, a major governmental official theoretically thinking that there is a corrupt element within their own government or a foreign government that could also influence their political um, 
what's the word? Their future, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a you great know, question. A campaign or something like that. How, like, is there any is there any situation where they can do that without it having be ha- having it be related to that political element? Sure. Having How do you it be separate advantageous that? to them? So let's say for this example here, Joe Biden is a le- or Joe Biden is a legit like criminal, and you want to investigate him. How can you do that without impacting the political process Correct. playing out? That's why Trump shouldn't be involved in this, right? That's why the Department of Justice should be leading this process. One of the things that Bill Taylor talked about today was this, you know, this dual foreign policy that developed between the normal State Department and this sort of extra judicial, you know, Rudy Giuliani process. Sure. If you're if you're worried about those political ramifications, you do everything by the book. So yeah, here's the counterpoint. Yeah, Biden was also not investigating but was pressuring uk ukraine to remove their what was it their the prosecutor the prosecutor prosecutor, yeah yeah realistically yeah you had international support for that quote unquote um (laughs) but nevertheless that could also benefit yeah no absolutely (laughs) him and his family personally as well as politically what is necessarily the difference between the two it's a great question. I would say that the the blatant and open way in which Trump has done this through Rudy Giuliani and others gets to his intent. So the question is, is Trump really worried about corruption or is he in, does he want to target his political opponent? And I think that's what much of this will come down to. If you if you move outside the normal channels of diplomacy, if you, if you send in Rudy and others, like it feels like that has the potential to be interpreted as more political in nature that you are trying to target opponent as opposed to going after corruption. Uh, but that, I think you're right, and, Nick, this is, this is going to be the question. And if I remember correctly, Biden was acting against his interests here, right? Like the, the reason they wanted this prosecutor fired is that he wasn't investigating corruption. So the, the problem was that he wasn't actually doing the investigations into Biden's son. So the, the idea that he would want this guy removed because he wasn't doing enough goes against the notion that he was doing it out of self-interest. Right. I don't believe you. Right. Absolutely. No, there's potential for that. Right. So so this really does come down to is Trump doing this for his personal political interest or is he doing it because he wants to fight corruption? Jim Jordan gave a conference after the, the hearing today where he said Trump just was trying to figure out what's going on and he was trying to figure out if corrupt, you know, corruption is endemic in the Ukraine. That's a potentially powerful argument. But if they can show that Trump doesn't care about corruption, he's only interested in his own political future, then mm. it's bad for him. It, it's also I mean, there's also a problem with the argument that Trump is the Trump camp is making, which is we really care about corruption. Ukraine is inherently corrupt, which is why we have to get involved and also why we need them to investigate our people. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> right, what? Right. If they're inherently corrupt, then we don't need them involved in investigations. It, it, it just doesn't it doesn't line up. But the other thing for me is that uh, this is an example. We talk about how like how far we've come or how we've gotten used to sort of the new normal of the Trump administration. And every now and then we have these contrasts that I think sort of you know, it, it's like the frog in the boiling water or whatever, right? If you turn the heat up slowly, you don't realize it. And then every now and then I have this reminder. And this is, I, I think back to the Bill Clinton and what was it? Loretta uh, Lynch, Lynch or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. When Bill Clinton, so this was when there was the investigation into Hillary or whatever. And Bill Clinton had the conversation with the attorney general, just went over and greeted her on a, on a tarmac, right? At the airplane. And like, the, everyone was like, holy shit, this is unacceptable, right? That, that she is in charge of an investigation into his wife. And so even having contact with her is, you know, fishy and problematic. And, and like how far we've come that we're now talking about like the president dictating all of this stuff and investigations into rivals and having conversations with Bill Barr and telling Bill Barr what to do. And like that, that we're like, is this problematic or not just shows how far we've come in a fairly short period of time, I think. The one thing that I think is trouble for Trump is that a lot of the guys that are pro-Trump don't want to go to jail. So like Sondland, right? You know, so so Sondland, who we'll talk about him in the future, he'll ultimately testify as well. The guy that was the the representative to the EU, he was kind of running this. Him and Giuliano are running behind scenes. He recently adjusted his testimony or his his whatever. He remembered some stuff, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) And and I think he remembered better because he didn't want to go to jail. And there's enough 
other and to your point nick you know this is sort of boring but you kind of lay the seeds here so that somebody big might come in and say like this did happen oh yeah you know mick mulvaney that guy doesn't want to go to jail so he could you know if he comes in john bolt i don't john bolton doesn't have to worry about going to jail but if mulvaney and bolton were to testify that's that could be the potential that i don't think it you don't get to 67 votes in the senate but you could get to the point where the senate comes to him and says like nixon it's enough over. is enough right we need to move on we want to go with pence or somebody else this is this is a disaster for us i think that's more likely than him losing in the senate oh yeah no i i agree and i i i don't want to to sound and I'm sorry if I made it sound like that where there's just no way that this no, is done. Yeah. I, I think that at this point with what they presented, I think it's very suspect at best. If you do have one of those very close inner circle uh, members start to testify that I think that changes the game completely. But until we get to that yeah. point right now, I don't think there's enough. There's rumors going around this week that, that Trump wants to fire Mulvaney, which would be the dumbest, <laughs> absolute dumbest thing any president well, could if do. If you fire them, then they're gone. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's something ironic about that whole thing, though, which is to say that there's nothing here that is, you know, impeachable and it crosses the line. But the, I mean, the whole reason that we say that is because of the massive level of obstruction of the investigation that the Trump administration is engaged in, right? We're not going to let anyone actually testify, but they've masterfully like presented that, right? Like it's a sham. So we're not going to let them participate. But it, yeah, anyway, I, I, I sort of imagine that will be what it, when the articles of impeachment are brought up that I, I would be shocked if obstruction of the investigation or obstruction of impeachment is not one yeah. of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and for all his flaws, Trump will stay on message with this, right? And he will hit it multiple times every single day. Uh, and that 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 is good for Republicans. And it is, you know, for the public keep hearing this over and over. I just I do wonder whether you have ultimately at a tipping point where they they say enough is enough. You know, have you no shame, Mr. President? <laughs> It's going to take a little it's, while. I think. It's easy to stay on message when you believe it, right? When you're like mm-hmm. <laughs> convinced that everyone is out to get you and it's all about you. Yeah. It's not a lie if you believe it. No, no. I think that every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is good. Should we move on? Yes, sir. All right. Phil, looks like you've got a wonderful beer over there. What are you, what are you drinking? Yeah. So I'm drinking. I did my dub, double dry hop beer last week. I'm doing another double dry hop beer Today, this is the Double Dry Hop Full Clip, and this is from Stoneface Brewing in Newington, New Hampshire. I, d- I don't really know that I knew a whole lot about what Double Dry Hopping was. We talked about that last week, but based yeah. on the two beers that I've had the last two weeks, I've concluded that I like Double Dry Hopped beers. This is this is good. <laughs> it's uh, I think I had had a series of, uh, you know, like uh, IPAs and double IPAs that were really fruity, and I, I like that. I enjoy the sort of citrus forward beers, but these Double Dry Hops are more hop forward, but they're not like bitter. It's not in your face. It's just the, those really nice hoppy flavors. Um, yeah, it's, it's really good. I'd recommend it. Good. Nick, what are we having? I don't fucking know. What I, that's at. why I'm asking you because I don't even know how to read. I don't even know how to read the name on this thing. So here's the thing. Yeah. Like if you're doing, if you're creating a new beer and you get two, uh, inside baseball with stuff that you guys are doing at the brewery, and you name it something like that, it doesn't really translate well. So I'm assuming this is from Stone. It's la- Who generally makes good beers. Generally makes we like good their beer. beers, yeah. It's labeled as fear, period, movie, period, lions. I don't know what the fuck that means. No. And I read the description that they have on the back, and I'm not going to bore you with that because it also makes no sense. So yeah, you whatever. read that to me, and I, I felt like I, I knew less about the beer after yes. you. Yeah. Yes. Um, so this was a double IPA. Um, yeah, like you said, Stone generally makes pretty good beers. I felt like this was very, like you said, very malty, yeah. had a lot of sweetness to it, but also had a lot of hops to yeah. it. And the combination just did not blend well. It's it's the double IPA that you don't like, right? I mean, so Phil, you've been talking about these dry hopped beers that are light and, and citrus forward. There's no citrus in this, Nick. It's I like, no, and, no. And, and I, I did not like this one at all. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you guys actually know how to say that, please let us know, because I would be really fascinated to know how you actually say this. Um, regardless, if you want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, um, Find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Search for Barstool Politics, and you will find all of our reviews on there. Time for speed round. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> so, 
Nikki Haley, the former ambassador to the United Nations, has caused quite a stir with her new memoir in which she recounts during her time in the Trump administration and other uh, other top officials lobbied her to help them undermine the president. Specifically, Haley notes that sleepy Rex Tillerson, then the secretary of state and John Kelly, then the White House chief of staff, considered some of Mr. Trump's policies so harebrained and dangerous that they ignored his directives and began recruiting other aides to derail his agenda. Haley writes that, quote, Kelly and Tillerson confided in me that when they resisted the president, they weren't being insubordinate. They were trying to save the country. Tillerson went on to tell me the reason he resisted the president's decisions was because if he didn't, people would die. They would (laughs) die, Nick. (laughs) Phil, I find this fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, it suggests that those at the highest levels of government were deeply troubled by Trump, and some of which we knew. Additionally, Haley's account can be understood as a defense of Trump. Mm -hmm. She has also forcefully defended Trump against impeachment allegations this week. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this topic. What's, What's your read? So I'm I'm more interested in the Nikki Haley aspect of it. I mean, we can come back around to the uh, the people yeah. in the inner circle, but but yeah, yeah the Nikki Haley. Yeah. I mean, the part that I think is interesting is that this is sort of like a little I don't know. It's a little case study in the future of the Republican Party in some ways, and and I'm I'm a little surprised. Nikki Haley is relatively young. She was seen as like the star in the Republican Party. I think people saw her even as a potential primary challenge to Trump. And and it feels like with this and what she was saying, she was saying that Trump has been what inherently truthful or something like yes. that about which is yes. just like of all the things you can say about him, that's not one of them, right? You could defend him in lots of ways. But it seems to me that that it seems short-sighted, right? I think, okay, so she's she's relatively young. I could see her, you know, 10, 15 years from now having some big role in the Republican Party. But instead- but it nominee feels, for president. Right. But it feels like yeah. she's, she thinks that if she wants that future in the Republican Party, she has to be- you know, on board with the with the Trump and, and with the Trump campaign or with with Trump. And and that's what surprises me. Like her lane to me was as she had she was, you know, proximal to the Trump. She, she was a U.N. Uh, you know, the secretary to the sorry, the ambassador to the U.N. for the U.S. Um, so she could have claimed that she served the, the Trump administration while still being critical. She was critical of the Trump administration. And that seems like a good lane, right? Like I was a, I was a consistent Republican. I did my duty, but I also recognized that he was deeply flawed. And, and you can, you know, make a career on that. This going all in surprises me. It seems short-sighted. It seems like this makes sense in the next two years. It doesn't make sense 10 years from now. I, I, I got things to say, but no, Nick, no, please no. go ahead. Well, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more, <laughs> Phil. That's surprising that we are. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, because <laughs> it feels to me like she was the only one in the administration who got out unscathed, right? I mean, during her time in the administration, she was very strategic to keep her distance, uh, to be professional, to, crit- to to subtly critique him in in some ways, but also to be pushing the Republican agenda. She felt like she had found that perfect balance. Maybe the only one, actually, especially since James Mattis wrote has written his book and kind of undermined some of some of his own legitimacy. Uh, she was the only one. Why do this at this point? You are you were out. I, I don't get it. Other than to your point, Phil, that maybe this is where she feels the Republican Party is, and now it's time to re-embrace Trump. But but I really I really don't get it. She felt like a star. Maybe not even 10 years, five years from now, 2024. I mean, some had said uh, maybe, I don't know if this is, if Pence is going out and she's going to be the new VP. That's the only reason this makes sense to me. I I am also befuddled, Nick. I I just don't, I don't know what to do about this. (laughs) Um, Yeah, she, just what's changed over the past five years or so in, in terms of her, um, her political career and um, her, her potential in the Republican party or, or as a, a major political contender is just baffling. To me. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's some aspect of her trying to recoup some of that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, it's a really interesting case study in how the administration operates uh, as well. Um, as much as I would like to say, you know, Kelly and Tillerson, you know, they're, they are, career government guys that that have done their jobs and and you know that it's we should respect them for doing that the the more like the the narrative that she 
paints is I, I don't, I don't, I don't like the way that they conducted themselves. Realistically, if they were, if they were that worried about it to the point where they thought Americans or, or generally people Could were die. going to die. Yeah. And you kept kind of going along with it and pushing things off on AIDS and and doing stuff that was not necessarily hurting, <clears throat> was not hurting you, but exacerbating this problem to a deeper degree. That's severely uh, problematic to me. Yes. And I, I that, that weirdly gives me more sympathy for for Trump and, and for, for her in this situation to, to say that obviously she didn't say anything either. So I'm not really happy about that, but to, to think that the people who were again, supposedly the adults in the room, quote unquote, that we've talked about on many occasions, um, again, took it upon themselves to kind of dictate policy and push things off and, and make it so they could still serve and think that they knew better than everybody else. That, that worries me. If, if you are the chief of staff and the secretary of state and you think the president is engaging in conduct where people could die, you have a moral responsibility to raise this outside of the inner circle of the, the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Full stop. Right. Full I mean, that's just like, I don't know, that's just, you know, there's there's no wiggle room there. Right. And both of them have left the administration, have not raised these cur- uh, concerns to the public. And I, I think it will ultimately you know, it, it just reflects on their legacy that they didn't do that. Uh, but the, the Haley thing is really fascinating, I, I think, because this week she was talking about that maybe the they should be investigating Biden. I mean, she is right. she feels like suddenly she is back all in on some of these conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, she is full Trump now. And I just Which, never saw that coming because she had spent so much of her entire tenure in the Trump administration felt like very careful to keep her distance, yeah. right? That I that, and and so to see that sort of abandoned, I'll be really interested to see twenty years from now how people view this sort of. There's a group of people, and and Haley and you know Mattis and all of these other people sort of fit into it in their own ways, but they're people who sort of want their cake and eat it too, right? They want to be a part. They want to have access to power. They want their you know Nikki Haley is an example of someone who wanted her profile raised, right, by being the the UN ambassador. She her her political profile is raised, but she also doesn't want any of the baggage that comes with being a part of the Trump administration until suddenly now. And yeah. I'll be interested to see how you know. I think they whether that sort of bargain plays out properly in the long run or or if they just end up, you know, in, anyway, I don't, I'm not real sure how history will judge the, you know, the adults in the room, so to speak. All right, let's move on and talk about Bolivia, Nick, which rhymes with Olivia. So Bolivia's good. Yes. Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, was overthrown in a a military coup uh, on November 10th. Morales was South America's longest serving president and was part of a wave of leftist leaders who reshaped Latin American politics during the 2000s. However, unlike his like minded allies in Venezuela and Cuba, Morales actually presided over somewhat strong economic growth. But as time went by, his illiberal tendencies slowly undermined his support across the country. In a national address, Morales said that he was stepping down in an effort to stop the bloodshed that had spread across the country in recent weeks, but admitted no wrongdoing and instead said that he was a victim of a military coup. Uh, the record suggests otherwise, and on Sunday night, the army showed him uh, shower, uh, showed him the door amid a wave of protests stemming from his attempt to steal the presidential election on October 2nd. Phil, Bolivia stands in stark contrast to Cuba and Venezuela, who have for decades failed to remove their leftist autocrat. What are we to make of these most recent developments? Um, yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I don't know exactly how to draw the, the important contrast between other places. I mean, I think there are some interesting lessons to take from Bolivia. And and I'm not sure, I'll, I'll put this question to the two of you about whether we should be encouraged by this or not, because uh, we have sort of two different forces at play. You have a leader who is subverting constitutional um 
you know, arrangements, right? So he, he, part of what led to all of this is that he w- ran for, I think, a fourth term, which was not allowed in the Constitution, right? So he's, he's stretching the limits of what is allowed. Um, as the voting happened, the, they were tallying the votes, and then it wasn't, it, suddenly there was a stop and a big pause, and then they came out and announced, oh, he has enough to win without a runoff. <laughs> you had to have 10% uh, uh, to win by at least 10% to, to, to not have a runoff. So he's pushed the limits. He's, you know, he's he has done things that are unconstitutional in order to stay in power, um, which is not great. But then it's also not great to have the military basically stepping in to 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 play a role in sort of mediating these sort of constitutional challenges and struggles. It would have been better if it had played out through constitutional courts or, or you know, this was it, – it's an interesting dilemma. You know, I saw somebody talking about during the Cold War, we, con- we largely – came to, to condemn coups. Coups were essentially these illegitimate the illegitimate involvement of the military in politics. And we tended to praise popular movements where people rose up and, and called for the government to step down. And this was this weird intersection of the two, right? It was a popular protest against him that then gets the support of the military. And I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the, in the end, Bolivia is the loser, right? But I don't, I don't know how to feel about, you know, are the, is the military a hero in this case? Are they, you know, and, and I mean, ultimately that, I think the military's support of this is what makes the difference between this and, you know, Venezuela or Cuba or someplace like that. And that's well, the, the 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 military is in some ways the defender of democracy, right? But they're yeah. doing it through these non like anyway. I, I don't. I'm troubled by that. I don't know how to how to make sense of it. Well, there's a reluctance to uh, among many in the West to say that this was a military coup. But the reality was it. Yes, it, it was. was a military coup. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, what does that mean for democracy? You know, when you look at uh, mili- the role of the military in states over time, whether it's Nigeria or Brazil or other places, sometimes they are a force for good. Sometimes they are not. It's undetermined how this will play out. But I think in the early returns, you can say that Morales was engaging in extra constitutional behavior. And and maybe the, the military did the right thing by temporarily restoring constant, you know, democracy. We will see. But yeah, it, it's an interesting one, Nick. So I'm curious, and you probably know more yeah. about infinitely more about this than I do. Beyond staying in power longer than he probably should have, what actions was he taking that were considered unconstitutional in terms of the Bolivian government? Was there anything specifically, you know, yeah. onerous that he was doing? This is a great question. So there was a referendum. So I think in Bolivia, you can run for three consecutive terms and then that's it. And this was his fourth. So during his third term, he put out a referendum to the people to say like, hey, you should let me run for a fourth. The people came back and said, nope, not going to happen. And so then what he did is then he said, okay, I'm going to bring this to this basically the Supreme Court and which he had packed with his own loyalists. And the Supreme Court said, sure, you can do it. So the, those were like the little things that he was doing. He was, you know, cracking down on opposition. But the other element of this is that in terms of economic development, he was he had done some good things. Right. He was much more moderate than Maduro or the Castros, right? He had he had engaged in multinationals, so there was some real economic su- success in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. I'm and I hesitate. I really hesitate to say this. Yeah. Um, in the current political climate that we have in Central and South America, any sort of stability with economic progress present seems to be more beneficial than the alternative at this point. Um, yes. That's just, your, that's just your hardline leftist views leading you to that conclusion, Nick. <laughs> oh, I'm a big coup fan. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, it, I, I, uh, I, I don't... Hmm. We will see, right? Because right. like realistically, it, we don't know what the military is going to do at this point. And, and odds are... In these situations, the military doesn't tend to give up power. No. Um, so Egypt, uh, a whole bunch of other places. Any, yeah. Any other place yeah. that you could probably think of right now. Um, so my thought is that we've taken a potential opportunity. Yes. Was it unconstitutional? Quote, unquote. <laughs> I suppose. No. Realistically, yeah, we should absolutely do that. But, or, or you know, follow, follow the, the rules that are put in place. But from a purely... Pag- uh, pragmatic, realistic perspective when 
a lot of the countries around you are on fire. Um, I, I that this seemed like a, a relatively bright spot of stability and security that has not been present in Central and South America for sure. a very, very long time. Now, it does sound like that there was fairly widespread pushback against him. You know, sure. it wasn't just the military that was doing this, that the public had kind of gotten tired of his antics oh, as well. Course. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but no, we saw the same thing in the Arab Spring. And, yeah, you, know, you, right. you rise up, obviously, with good intentions. And then the result of that is chaos that you don't come back from for years, if not decades. That's a fair point. Other so. than Tunisia, the Arab Spring was, yeah, was we drifted back into military dictatorships. There, there's an argument for the, the, I don't know, the praise that you could put on the Bolivian military is, I suppose, there's a danger in waiting too long, right? Like if you do that, if he serves a fourth term and then a fifth term and fur- further solidifies himself, then the, you know, the, there's damage done to sort of the institutions and democracy. And to be fair, basically the way this coup, I, I, the, the reason people are, are saying it wasn't a coup is that the military, air right, <laughs> the military didn't physically remove him. They just announced that they will not support him, which is a pretty significant, I mean, it's hard to stay in power. And so in some ways, as far as a coup goes, this is a pretty positive. <laughs> Somehow I've talked myself into thinking, trying to argue for a military coup, but at least okay. it was essentially saying, we're not going to support this person who is not living up to the constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's still this, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. But think about it this way. We're, we're, I think we're being too hard on Bolivia. Think about Venezuela. If the Venezuelan, a student of mine pointed this out today, if the Venezuelan military shifted and said, it's time for Maduro to go, he would be gone. Right. So the only reason that he is still in power in Venezuela is because the military still backs him. So if they had some sense of the broader future of Venezuela and said it's time to move on like Bolivia did, this could be a good thing. But that's a massive slippery slope. Right. Do you want the U.S. military coming out and saying we don't support Barack Obama or we don't support Donald Trump? Like that would be devastating. That would not be though. That's not the right way to do it. No, I totally get that. You're right. Uh, military coups are not the way to resolve you know, <laughs> democracies. But that being said, in in these cases where individuals are moving outside of the democratic bounds, when you have an illiberal you know, official, there are times where the military might be the only one to remove those individuals. That is true. Yeah. Doesn't mean no. it's good. <laughs> I love that Nick is the leftist on this topic. (laughs) No, I'm not a leftist in this situation. I'm a pragmatist Pragmatist. in this situation. Just supporting the leftist. All right. I'm just going to call this episode air quotes, by the way. So, all right. uh, Time to come back to the United States and talk about DACA. So, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court, her arguments on DACA, the uh, the program shielding roughly 700,000 young undocumented, or relative, I guess they're old now, undocumented immigrants brought to the United States as children. The Trump administration argued that the court should end the program and the court's conservative justice showed an inclination to agree. Earlier in the day, Trump tweeted about the undocumented immigrants known as dreamers, stating that, quote, many of the people in DACA no longer very uh, very young are far from angels. Some are very tough, hardened criminals. Trump did note that if the Supreme Court overturns DACA, as he suggests they should, he would be open to making a deal with the Dems. Phil, this is an interesting case and one I think Trump might be likely to win. And to be honest, I think the law might be on his side here. It raises important questions about executive power and in particular executive orders and whether Obama exceeded that power with DACA. What's your your thoughts on this most recent development? Uh, I, I do. I think this is really interesting. I, I mean, I, the first thing that I feel the need to say is that his argument that a lot of these people are far from angels, it, it should be pointed out that in order to qualify for DACA, you can't be a hardened criminal. Like they are mutually exclusive. Um, if you have a felony or even a serious misdemeanor or even I think three minor misdemeanors, you're, you're like done. So anyway, that's separate from the point. The, the question about whether or not uh, the, 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 the president should be doing, I mean, it feels like the part of the question is about, um, does, does the president have the ability to basically take away these protections, right? Or the, what has been granted to them. And, and in a straightforward sense, yes, the president does, right? The president has, and, and, and the, the protections were from the beginning listed as like a renewable at after two years or whatever, 
I think the question, and this is where it would be interesting to have Tom on, in some ways the question is about when you do that, you're really shitting on all of these people who came forward and basically signed up for the DACA protections. Um, and, and so the question is, is the I, – I, in international law, in my international law class, we've been talking about you know, a lot of times the standard that is put forth in, in these – in these cases is, is there a legitimate governmental purpose? So, so yeah, you're kind of crapping on these people, but if it actually serves some larger purpose, then you're allowed to do that. Um, and I, that's the part where I don't, I'm not sure I'm convinced, right? The argument that the Trump administration has made is essentially, we want to send a message about immigration, right? This is not what we support. And, and while that is valid and the Trump administration has the right to do that, um, I don't know that there's any evidence that DACA or ending DACA will actually decrease immigration. And so the question of you're, you're, you're doing harm to a lot of people and there's not evidence that the purpose you're pursuing actually is achieved by doing it. That's the question that I think comes around to. I don't know that that will matter in a league, like in the end. I think the court might say that they're free to do this. But from sort of an ethical or moral perspective, I, I kind of like thinking of it through that lens. And, and, I, and to, that, to that extent, I'm, I'm troubled by it. It sounds like it's going to come down to Roberts. And ultimately, I mean, like the census case, it's going to come down to Roberts and where he falls on this. Mm-hmm. Nick. DACA. Um, <laughs> DACA. Um, this, I, I go back and forth on this one. Um, realistically, my viewpoint is that the people who are already here who were thinking that, you know, these, this was their, not their necessarily their right, but they were, they were um, protected under, under this specific program and under these mandates. Um, I don't think those people should be messed with. Uh, it, you know, you have, uh, effectively American citizens at this point who are kind of caught in the middle of a program that, you know, they didn't necessarily, uh, advocate for, they were children when they got here and there's no reason to constantly put them through this. Having said that the Trump administration at this point needs to take a real careful look at the strategy that they're, that they're employing. Uh, I, I mean, I, there, there is, I think, legal, standing for them to to win this case. But realistically, you need to think about what comes after this. If I was in the administration, I'd be going, yeah, fine. We will uh, create a path to citizenship for anybody who's in DACA, anyone who is in the program currently, you know, we will not mess with their their rights and yep. their abilities going forward. After that point, we need to put, you need to put a bipartisan immigration reform effort forward, or I'm going to veto anything that you that you uh, uh, put forward until we get to that point. So I like I, it's there. This seems relatively like an easy problem that we can solve, and they keep finding the most difficult, yeah. fucked up way to deal with it. This is a great point because there's 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 three different elements here. There's the legal argument, which I think Trump is likely to win. There's the moral element, which Phil pointed out, which is I think they lose, right? And then there's the political aspect, which is this is stupid for Trump. He doesn't want to own, you know, deporting seven hundred thousand DACA recipients. It's 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 an awful thing. Stephen so Miller does Supreme- though. <laughs> well, we didn't talk about Stephen. Miller, but that guy's got some problems, yeah. right? Um, if if suddenly the court comes back and says, you're right, Donald Trump, you know, these people aren't protected, he's either got to solve that by reaching out to Democrats or kick them out of the country. Right. That's, you know, for a finite group of people, that's so, so messy. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, Nick. It's much easier for him to say, all right, we'll let this group pass. There's good reasons for accepting that. And then we move on. But by pushing this to the Supreme Court, it just feels like this could be a real political loss even if it's a legal victory. It's going to get very, very ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think he gets that. I don't know why. I, I, I don't know. It feels like he's just giving the Democrats a, a gift here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Nick, Berlin wall time. <laughs> here we go. All right. So last Saturday, <laughs> November 9th. Did you know it's not there anymore? Oh, oh, I forgot to bring my piece, Nick. The piece of Berlin Walls are over there. So last Saturday, November 9th, marked the 30th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. Over the weekend, tens of thousands converged on the city's iconic Brandenburg Gate gate to celebrate the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. German Chancellor Angela Merkel spoke at the festivities and stated, quote, the Berlin Wall is now history. 
And the lesson learned is that there are no walls high enough or wide enough to keep people out or limit freedom that cannot be torn down. Sounds like a challenge. I I like that a lot. While there is no (laughs) doubt that progress has been made, the East-West divisions remain, both in Germany and across Europe, and many are afraid the gains made in the last 30 years are under threat. A wave of nationalism has been particularly strong in East Germany and in Eastern Europe. NATO is under increasing strain, and Russia seems emboldened around the world. Moreover, the optimism that spread across the world in 1989 is a distant memory. Phil, so much has changed in the last 30 years. Most of our graduate school training was on assessing and understanding these events. I must say I found myself quite nostalgic about the anniversary. I've got my piece of the Berlin Wall on the table right behind us. You know, Nick, this is so exciting. Um, (laughs) Phil, what's, what's your reaction to all this nostalgia over 30 years of the wall coming down? Um, I, I am like you, right? I, I, yeah. I tend to think back to this in this, as this kind of really positive time. But as I step back from it, I think it, it is largely nostalgia, right? I mean, I think it misses the idea that we, we tend to sort of glorify these periods, right? These periods of optimism after the fall of the Berlin Wall or at the end of World War II. And, and there was a lot of optimism. But part of the reason why there was a lot of optimism is because the era we had come out was of was so shitty, right? And so it's like, it can only get better from here. Surely it's <laughs> yes. going to get better from here. And, and it did inspire people to try to do more. But um, the, the idea that it was somehow clean and, and like the, the end of the Berlin Wall meant that things, that the problems were solved and everything was like happily moving forward misses out on the fact that it was actually a really deeply messy, divisive time that led to, yes, I mean, it led to sort of the reintegration of Europe, but that's been really difficult for Germany. That period for Poland and the other Eastern European countries right after the fall of communism was brutally painful as they reintegrated, as they went through shock therapy and reintegrated into the, you know, a Western style economy. And and so I think that the tendency is to look around us at the world today and, and think, man, there's a lot of crappy stuff going on. Back then, it seemed so much simpler. And it did because it, it seems that way because we're not in it. In that moment, I think it felt a lot like it does now, this like really complex, messy you know, period in which there's a lot of uncertainty, like what the hell comes. It's nice now because we have hindsight, right? In 1989, when this was happening, there was a whole lot of like, this is exciting, but I also kind of terrifying, (laughs) like what is going to happen? It's easier to attack something that's bad, which, you know, which was the Soviet Union, which was the wall, than to really build something that's good. And I think that's democracy and, you know, the free market and all of that. And that's that's what we've struggled with. Mm-hmm. Nick, Nick, the wall coming down, it's a, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah. I, I got I to kind of agree with Phil on this yeah. one, like, especially in terms of from an intelligence um, milit- uh, militaristic standpoint, I guess this was probably the worst thing that could have possibly happened. Um, and I think you'll find a lot of, you know, old school cold warriors, the, you know, elder Bush and, and, uh, other mem- members of, of that kind of, uh, of that ilk that, um, suggested and have suggested publicly that having Russia as kind of the, the main bad guy for us to face off against was infinitely, uh, simpler and more manageable than the plethora of enemies that were created after that. Um, and from an economic perspective, I think that the, the fall of the Berlin wall was great in the sense that you opened up, you know, a a whole mess of markets to a, a Westernized globalized economy. But at the same time, that economy or that, that method of economics wasn't, it's it wasn't um what's what's the best term for it uh coalesced enough and 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 cemented enough to have it be stable Mm -hmm. um that's why we're seeing the results that we have right now people kind of railing against that and what it means for immigration uh and and what it means for for cultural changes especially in in free trade all of the globalization Um, yeah and I, i the the lack of of foresight on a lot of people with such a monumental event while it was, it was that this kind of seminal moment in that generation's history and, you know, in history in general, the, the ability to kind of take advantage of that and steward the lessons that we learned from that, uh, you know, into the coming decades, we, we 
we, we fucked up. <laughs> well, I think there's a really great book to be written about. Like, why was this so hard? You know, what, what went wrong that after finally defeating totalism? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, defeating <laughs> communism, why, yeah. why was it difficult to embrace? And that was really the beginning of globalization. Why was it so hard to, to embrace a, a global marketplace and democracy? And in some ways, I get the economic arguments that globalization outsources. But they did. They really did. They did. And then, then it started to push back and cause pain. Same thing with democracy. It pushed back. And like, why did these things that we thought were, were so great? I mean, Francis Fukuyama wrote this book, The End of History, where this was, you know, we finally have reached that point where we're not going to fight about anything anymore. You know, we agree that market freedom and democracy are the best systems. And then suddenly history started again. And it, it's, it's been really fascinating. There's an argument in there as well for doing away with nostalgia from a different perspective, which is that I think part of, you know, part of why we have this backsliding in, in, uh, in regards to democracy in places like, you know, Hungary or, or Poland is because that, that there is, it's not nostalgia, but we've in some ways, you know, forgotten how shitty it was, right? Yeah. Now, we, I, this is the other part, is that we're talking as three Americans, right? I think if you lived in East Germany or if you had lived through East German and, you know, the the security state, the Stasi, the level of surveillance, like the idea that in some way this is worse than that is like laughable, right? And I think, you know, it, it's the same thing in in Poland and, and in other places. Like I've, I've, you know, I've been able to travel to, Estonia and Poland and places like that because of the level of freedom and the level of economic and, you know, economic success and all of that. And I, I worry that maybe we, I don't know, maybe people forget the, how, how good those gains are, even if they're hard to come by. Yeah. I think the other really interesting th sort of building off that is that we forget there are distinct identities. So there were, the New York Times did a great piece this week talking about the identity of, of being East German versus West German. And even though the country mm -hmm. has been reunited, there are real differences there that we just tend to assume, oh, you know, we're all united together. And there's a much stronger sense of nationalism in East Germany. There's much, uh, there's much more hesitancy to embrace immigration, anti-globalization sentiments. Like those are real things that just don't go away. Mm -hmm. I, and I think we that's the where we oversimplify things by expecting them to. We have divisions that are in place 150 years after the Civil War, right? About the, between the <laughs> South and other parts of the country. And we expect that, you know, the Germany 30 years later, why the hell haven't they figured this out? Is Or why are people still trapped in these East-West identities? And of course, it's natural, right? Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I think you, uh, since the fall of, of the uh, the Soviet Union, you also have the impact of what we've seen over the past decade or two, the impact of globalization and migration patterns and people moving into those areas that realistically had to deal with the the hardships of, uh, like to, to Phil's point, had to integrate back into this globalized society. And now they have to deal with not only their historical tensions, but new groups that are coming in there and disrupting those tensions and creating new ones on top of it. It's, it's a, it's an extraordinarily tumultuous situation. Good word. Good word, Nick. <laughs> That's a good way to end. But, it, but really, I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of, of historical, the historical struggle, a really, really important point. And I think where we are right now is so fascinating compared to where we were 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. We couldn't have anticipated the struggles the anti-globalization, the anti-free market, and the anti-democracy movements we're seeing today. Yeah, I would. I would go back though. I mean, being Americans, I would definitely go back. You got Top Gun. You got the Hulk. <laughs> you've got neon clothes everywhere. It was a great time. It was a wonderful time. Threat for of Americans. constant threat of nuclear annihilation. In the early '90s, what are you talking? No, about? early '90s. There you go. Sure. Well, yeah, yeah. That, that's when they were all rogue because all the new U the Ukrainians had been independent and they didn't know what to do with their their nukes right. except for sell them. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Every action movie had like a Ukrainian or a Russian terrorist to it. It was great. It was a great time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fun. Thanks for thanks for allowing that, Nick. <laughs> uh, I always enjoy talking about that stuff. Um, anyways, like I said at the beginning. Uh, we have a live event one week from tonight, Woo! November 20th, 6.30 p.m. Uh, here in Naperville. Miley uh, Swallow Hall. Yes. Uh, uh, North Central's campus. Myself, Bill, Phil, Tom, Suzanne, we will all be there in person uh, doing, uh, taking questions, doing what we normally do on the podcast, and just kind of having a good time. Uh, either show up at the door. If you guys want to share it with people, um, go to the Eventbrite event uh, on Eventbrite. Did I say that enough? 
Um, you can share the, the event directly through there. It has the time and location and, and all of that stuff. Uh, and you can get free tickets through there. That kind of helps us get a headcount. So it would be much appreciated if you can do that. But like I said, just show up at the door. Everything will be fine. We'll blast no it. one will turn you away. We'll blast social media this week with all the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, merchandise coming soon. So look for that on social as well. Um, so to that point, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find it untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics on there. And then the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Anything else, guys? Happy birthday to Bill. This is a lot of fun. Yes. Happy <laughs> All right. We will see you guys next week for the live event. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. <laughs>